Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is Kevin's predecessor and the former financial manager of the ASSU and CEO of Stanford Student Enterprises, Lomo Phillips. Hi, Lomo. Hey, Cricket. How are you? Uh, doing pretty well. It's been a while. How are you? I am doing all right. Can't complain too, too much in this in these crazy times. Thanks for asking. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been up to since you left office in June? Sure. So uh, for everyone who hasn't met me yet or is meeting me for the first time on this podcast, my name is Lomo. I use she, her pronouns. I graduated from Stanford back in 2017 with my undergrad degree in art history And as Cricket said, my last role was being the CEO for SSE, Stanford Student Enterprises, and financial manager for the ASSU. Miss y'all so, so much. And since July, when I left, I have been vigorously job hunting online. I've been doing kind of upskilling or skilling up is what they're, they're calling it now, where I've been taking online classes to try and buff up my skills in Salesforce, HubSpot. I recently got my project management certification as well. I've been based in San Jose, which is a a different city for me. And uh, something else that I've been doing is I've been expanding my network outside of Stanford. A lot of what I've done for the past, what, seven years, including undergrad, has been very Stanford-focused. So something that I've been enjoying a lot is reaching out to people who are in positions at different companies that I'm interested in, who I have no formal connection with, just kind of cold, cold emailing them, cold calling them to see what they do and how they do it. So that's been a lot of fun. That is awesome. Definitely something that most of us are not used to. I feel like once Stanford has you in its clutches, you kind of are there for life, which is good, but also there's there's a world out there that we Exactly. You were at Stanford before and during COVID for your role as FM CEO. So I'm wondering, would you mind telling us a little bit about the differences and how you think that that could contribute to future work that we're doing? It's so crazy because it hasn't even been six months since I I left. And what was so weird about leaving is that it didn't, I feel like obviously there was closure and then I said my goodbyes, you know, a little happy hour afterward, virtual, of course, but I didn't get to say goodbyes in person like I would have liked to. I still have like this weird kind of hanging thing there where I haven't been able to say goodbye to, to people in person formally. But to answer your question a little bit better, before the pandemic, it was always important to me in that leadership role is that I listened to as many people as I could, but especially students. The student body was the main body of constituents. Um, We were serving as the ASSU and SSE. So in really, in in every decision that I made, uh, whether it was small scale or large scale, I made sure that it was with students, it was with my staff in mind, what was in their their best interest, their best wants for for the future, for for the organization going forward. And really what I saw switching is as, you know, that fateful day, March 13th hit, where everyone is being asked to, to quarantine, you know, what is this, what is this now, this new word, quarantine and, and shutdown, is I had to make a lot of executive decisions on my own, which I was fine with, right? That was part of the being in, in a role like that. But having to email my, my staff and tell them that we are shutting down the store until further notice. We are closing the office until further notice. You cannot come in. The doors will be locked. Here's how things are going to go for like the next few weeks until we start to figure things out because it was just so early. We thought, oh, we're going to be 
in quarantine until May, right? And, and here we are still today in November in, inside. So after COVID, it was really difficult to navigate this totally new space. And I think it was difficult for everyone, right? To be able to communicate with staff, you know, when, when we can go into the office, some things we had to do in the office, right? But we had to do it in a very careful way with university and county regulations. And so that was a that was really, really difficult to navigate. Hopefully I answered your question, by the way. How mm-hmm. was the budget affected by the fact that so many things had to be canceled, both in the SSE and also within various student organizations? It was so, oh gosh, I keep on using the word crazy. I'll, I'll try wild this time. However, the same, it was so wild because right around that time, around March slash April is when the budget is usually approved. So it's usually right after ASSU elections when the new Senate, GSC exec is in is when I will do budget presentations with the new FM CEO with the accounting manager to get the budget passed and so that had to be delayed a lot later because the budget was now projecting to be changed so much and for a couple of different reasons we knew that the um, economic market was going to be very or we predicted it, I should say, to be very volatile. I believe at the time that we were looking at it, it was very volatile, but we also predicted that in the future we were going to lose money in in our investments just as, as everyone else would. So we had to change it in that way that we couldn't rely necessarily on some of the income from investments as we normally would in previous fiscal years. Though we weren't sure at the time, we knew that activities would not look the same in the next academic year. So we knew student group activities, those larger events, all of like, you know, the Frost, Blackfest, all the stuff that had to be canceled in the spring, likely not going to happen in the fall or winter of next year. So we had to start rethinking around how are we going to appropriate the fee if activities aren't going to look the same. So one of the things that I did with some of my full-time staff members is we created a survey that we sent out to student group leaders, financial officers, presidents, vice presidents, to ask what they were thinking for their own groups next year, right? We, as much as we wanted to make, you know, kind of fast decisions because it was was right around budget time, I was leaving in just a couple months afterward. We still wanted to make sure that the student voice was there in the decisions that we were making and taking into account if, you know, our groups wanting to, to travel next year, obviously they can't, But did they want to travel next year or did they want to reallocate those funds to having DoorDash gift cards and trying to do a virtual meetup, those sorts of things. And then in turn saying, would you rather have half the fee and then half of your student activities money or would you rather have the full fee? Or there were a number of situations that we proposed in the survey and we took the analytics of that survey into the into the new budget, into the new budget presentation. And I think to to kind of round up the the answer to that question, what was always important to me, and I knew this was something that the student body valued, that students overall valued, was the financial security and job stability of, of students and workers on campus. And so what I made sure to, in all my communications with staff afterward to, to ASSU and SSE, is that our number one priority, kind of our two number ones, if I can say that, was the health and safety of students and staff, but also the financial and job security so that we might not be able to do raises like we normally do in the next year, might not be able to add new student positions like we like to do in the next year. But for all of those who currently have a job, who currently are being paid, we are going to do our absolute best to make sure that you're still there next year and that you can still have a job right now.
Yeah, I think that's super important. We're seeing the job market just declining a lot in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I mean, even finding jobs for college students is difficult. So I'm glad that there's been some stability for as many people as possible in the ASSU and SSE. There was a daily article recently about the fact that the ASSU has put funds completely into ESG funds, which was something that students have been asking for for a couple years at least now. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. I uh, want to say huge kudos to Kevin, Susan, Richa, the whole team who, who is there right now who, who made that happen. It's a huge, huge step in the right direction. So major congrats on that. And this research into ESG, I want to say, really started in full during my second term as financial manager. So that would have been around July of 2019 or so. And to be totally honest, I can't take most of the credit for that. That was mainly under the direction of Susan Benton, the accounting manager, Erica Scott, who was the ASSE president at the time, Richa Gupta, who was the SSE investment analyst at the time, and I believe still is. And then, of course, students from different student groups, including Fossil Free Stanford, and then students who were just involved in the focus groups that we held throughout that year. And so we... Uh, along with a couple of people, excuse me, on our board of directors as well, um, Kent Scott being one of them. They really took a look at what what ESG is, trying to inform the student community um, who might not have known what, what ESG was. I'll admit, I didn't really know what ESG was uh, before I started as financial manager. And then looking at the different funds in which we could invest. Did we want to divest from, a lot of people will use fossil fuels, but there could also be um, from weapons, from companies that, that give a lot of money to groups or whatnot. It didn't want to be from like gambling is, is actually one. That's obviously not, not one that was high on our priority list, but that is something that is a something that's included under the umbrella, I believe, of ESG. And so what Richa, Erica, and Susan really did was begin to, using all of these different funds that we could now move our money into, they began to whittle those down based off of student value. So in hosting those student groups, they really got to the core of what are students not only focused on now that they really want to divest from and or reinvest in, but also for the next few years. Where do they see there being major issues or major things that they might want to divest, reinvest in? We knew that we wanted to take at least a portion of our investments and for sure reinvest in within the next year. But I think part of the decision to move everything now, which was going to happen within the next three to five years anyway. Part of the decision to, to do that now, I believe, was in the fact that I think COVID was actually probably one of the catalysts to, to do that, that it, we weren't sure where we were going to be in the next three to five years. We knew that this was something that was going to happen anyway. Why not just, just do it now, especially because students have been pushing for this really more on the university side. But given that we are for students and by students, why not do it now? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the university, though, has been hesitant to make any comment on whether they are planning to do that. Is there any opposition from the university? Ooh, that is a very good question. From my recollection slash in my personal email box, I will say that there wasn't because our our funds are separate, right? Like we are a separate 501c3 nonprofit from the university, though we obviously are on campus and we are made up of Stanford students. We are I was, a, I was not a Stanford staff member, right? I was to the, to the ASSU. I was a staff member of the ASSU. And our funds were, were separate. So they really couldn't, quote unquote, tell us what to do, what to do with that. So I will say other people might have gotten that. I personally did not. 
At the time of this recording, the university has not made a solid statement about what will be happening for winter quarter, though currently there are plans to have freshmen, sophomores, and transfer students on campus. The problem with this is that students have been asked to purchase refundable travel, and some of them are not capable of doing so for financial reasons. Some students currently on campus have also been asked to store their things for at least $100 a month. And the problem with this is, again, that some students are unable to do so. The reasoning is that the university doesn't know where those students will be placed. But again, the problem is the finances. What do you think that the ASSU and or the university can and should do about this? And what do you think about the fact that the university has chosen to remain neutral on the plan for winter quarter? That's also a really great question. I think from the university-wise, in my personal opinion, uh, that's really wrong because as you said, a lot of students who are on campus for winter break or even who are on campus now need that housing, can't go back quote-unquote home for for a multitude of reasons. Um, They're often, you know, first-gen low-income students and $100 a month just isn't feasible for a lot of students. So I think to try and force that, try and kick them off campus when some students literally have nowhere to go is wrong, in my opinion. I think the university should reverse that because that also poses health concerns, right? I think it's one major health concern to have that many students on campus, especially as numbers of cases are rising to have students come from a multitude of different regions come back on campus seems really scary to me. I can see some of the reason why you'd want to do that, but I think health is the, is the top concern. But then on the reverse side, having students who are currently on campus leave then also poses an, another a different health concern as well. In my personal opinion, I think the university should reverse that and not have that happen uh, as much as they can. In terms of the ASSU and what the ASSU can do, I think a lot of people will immediately jump to money, which again, I, I think that makes sense in terms of directional thinking, is that you would, that the ASSU would provide money in terms of storage fees or what may have you. So at the end of the day, there's only so much money for the ASSU to be able to do that. The majority of the money that we have within ASSU goes towards student groups, you know, in the millions of dollars. I think that's probably changed this upcoming year because of COVID and because activities just cannot happen on campus and probably can't for the next couple of quarters is my guess. But even with doing the student relief fund that the GSC and the Senate and a lot of people who were able to pull that together that we did in the spring, that not only took one, a lot of labor, that took a a lot of money out, right? And we do have reserves to be able to provide funding for circumstances like that for immediate responses to immediate need in the community. I don't think funding storage or perhaps other expenses like that right now makes sense just because we're in a really, not necessarily unstable, but uncertain financial time. That, that's that's kind of my guess. So to be totally honest in terms of what the ASSU can do, I'm not totally sure. I think the ASSU has a lot of power in getting a lot of people together to perhaps create create a fund outside of the ASSU or even just create, um, has a really strong network of current students, but also alumni, right? And to be able to pull together a fund or awareness of what might happen to these students and what we can do to best support them. That's a really smart way of putting it, although I'm sure that some people will not be happy since uh, immediate financial aid is not being provided. Although I would argue that university financial aid should cover this. The reason that we were given for the quarter ending so early and having a seven-week winter break is because 
the university said that they did not want any COVID to be brought back onto campus. They wanted students to have time to settle into wherever they're staying for winter break. And some of those people would be on campus. But now they're kind of, you know, some people are being kicked off. So that is interesting, to say the least. Recently, there has been a joint resolution in the Senate and the GSC, um, mm-hmm. along with the Abolish Stanford Greek group, which I imagine is primarily alumni, to complete the dehousing of Greek organizations, possibly by next year, but basically according to the resolution, as soon as possible. So do you have any comments on that? Let's see about the, I actually haven't seen the resolution itself. I'm relatively aware, I guess you could say, of what's going on because I follow the Abolish Stanford Greek group on Instagram. I think, I mean, again, personal opinion, I think it's totally fine to dehouse Greek groups. I think they're, you know, as as the um, Abolish Stanford Greek group has said, a lot of these, and this is, of course, excluding multicultural Greek organizations, but a lot of these Greek groups were founded upon white supremacist values. A lot of them still perpetuate that in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of, how do I put it, kind of bad trajectories, bad traditions in Greek groups. I mean, I'll be totally transparent. I was in Pi Phi during my sophomore year, I lived in the house, didn't have the best experience. Being one of the few black women in not only in the house, but in my in my class, even though I'm very white passing, the really the few people that I bonded with were uh, the other black women in the house who also happened to be in my lineage. But anyway, I think a lot of us share a similar experience of that being uh, of a minority in a in a Greek group and how you're how you're treated in those spaces, the socioeconomic uh, disparities, I guess you could say, within within the houses. My comment is, I, I support that completely. Assuming that there are some people who are unaware of the white supremacy values that Greek organizations were founded in, or just supposing that people are unaware of how anti-minority that some organizations can be. Would you mind talking a little bit more about that experience? Sure. I think I'll speak of it from my own perspective or from my own experiences. I think, at least from what I've seen on the Abolish Stanford Greek Instagram group, they provide a lot of really interesting background information on certain fraternities and sororities, and they provide a lot of anecdotal experiences that people submit and they post anonymously on there and there are things that that I have been surprised by things that I haven't been surprised by and you know there was a time I just remember where part of the perk of living in one of those houses is that you get to have you know the the chef the chef in the house so you have meals cooked Monday through Monday through Friday, they're they're always delicious. The people who the staff who actually cook and who actually clean the house are, are wonderful. And sometimes the disrespect that I would see in the house of of the cleaning and the uh, cooking staff was just awful. It's a certain time where I came back, I didn't even feel comfortable like eating with people out there because people kind of already formed their own cliques within the house where they invited people over and people were not, you know, even though you would be standing there trying to kind of sit with them, it was a little bit like, okay, I can't sit with, they're, they're not making eye contact, right? So I went back to my room and my roommate Chisholm, she's black, she's Nigerian American, one of my best friends still to this day, he was in there eating in her room too. And I'm like, oh, you're eating in here too? Like, are you working on a homework assignment? She's like, no, I just don't feel, I, I was trying to sit with people and they, 
they weren't really like looking at me like you know there was no one who I really knew out there and everyone kind of seemed to be engrossed in their own conversation and I said that's literally the reason why I'm here too and that's kind of a, a one-off or I shouldn't say one-off that's one experience one memory that I have that's not to say you know everyone in the in the house was was awful or anything like that there were still very nice people but it was definitely an experience that I don't think I had remembered at least as starkly from freshman year, but I had realized living in that house how much of a, how different I was from some of those people in the house is, is I guess, a, a way to put it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it sounds to me then like there's a little bit of seclusion based on differences. Is that right? That is what I personally felt. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that sounds like something that's pretty common from the Abolish Stanford Greek page and from some people that I know as well. I think that this movement is very well timed, especially since we're still in quarantine. And I'm hoping that no matter what the outcome is, that all students are starting to feel a little more welcome afterward. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think that one thing that we should be emphasizing as students, hopefully in an effort to get the university to follow, is um, transparency. I think this was back in January or February. You and I wrote an article for The Daily about how the ASSU was going through a rebranding process, um, mm -hmm. which is supposed to emphasize diversity, community, equity, transparency, and growth, if I remember correctly. Some people are not familiar with what rebranding is, because as I think I wrote in the article, um, a lot of people think it's kind of like erasing the contents of a file and starting over again, but that's not Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. so would you mind talking a little bit more about the rebranding process, and I guess also what inspired you to uh, present that as your big project? Sure, absolutely, I would love to. So when I was actually brought on into Stanford Student Enterprises, it was a few months after I graduated, and I started as the business and operations manager for SSE. What that, and so that was also Kevin's um, previous position. Um, so he was business operations manager when I was FMCEO. But what I realized kind of from my own experience as B and O or business and operations manager is our organization didn't seem super well known on campus. How I got that anecdotally people weren't applying to positions that had been open for a while or we weren't getting a lot of people. Marketing was really hard for us and then truthfully from you know art history background just kind of looking at design our logos looked so old tired, dead. I'm sure they were great like back in the day when they were created um, and they were you know new and modern then but they didn't speak at all, at least to me, of the vibrancy of the culture that we were um, curating and creating at ASSU and SSE. They didn't say student to me. They seemed kind of like a, you know, 2000s company or something like that. So um, I couldn't just go on my own hunch, couldn't just go on my own intuition. So when I started as CEO, I wanted to survey the student body to see what they did know, what they didn't know about ASSU and SSE, what they thought of our logos. And essentially through what 400 plus, around 400 survey results that we got, they essentially confirmed what I thought. People thought that um, the ASSU was inefficient. Our logos were, I think the top three were like plain, old and boring were the top three results. And that was the free text question in the survey. Only 5% of the students who took that survey knew that we were a nonprofit. So that was something that we weren't communicating well. And, oh, and there were 44% um, of students of people, of students who took that survey had never heard of SSE and didn't know what we did. So apart from just logos wise, I, that was something that I knew that I wanted to redo. 
I realized we also had a branding problem. So we are, we've already been established. Um, SSE has been around since 1996. The ASSU has been around since Stanford has been around. And we've obviously changed quite a bit throughout the years. But we've been established. We're not new organizations. So we needed to rebrand. Meaning, how do we take all of the great things that we've done in the past and how do we modernize our image so the, our target audience, which is students, know us more, they want to be involved with us, and they have, as much as possible, a positive outlook of who we are and what we do. And so that involved a lot of different things. As you mentioned, brand values. I think every good brand, every good organization needs to be routed in values. And I don't just mean kind of these um, airy and vague values that we say are important to us. How do these values actually find themselves in our everyday decisions? Um, if we're not making a decision that's based in equity and in accessibility and community, etc., then we shouldn't be making that decision, right? It should be a, a different decision point or a different conversation. Our brand messaging, our social media then, uh, then changed afterward. Our tone of voice to say, here's what we are not going to sound like and here's what we're going to try and sound like. And really the idea with rebranding was not just to have, um, have it be just for, for the now, but have it be long-term and sustainable. So ideally, these, these values, this new foundation for ASSU and SSE would help project us into, into the future. Right. So one thing, though, that hasn't necessarily changed is that we do have some positions on Bing. I think uh, by the time that this goes up, I think all of them probably will have closed. But there's still a lack of people applying. And I think that I personally would like to see more fresh applying for things because hmm. sophomore year is a great year to start exploring, um, or at least my sophomore year was good to start exploring. This might be a little different because of the pandemic, but, um, mm -hmm. but sophomore year is a good year at the very least to get grounded in what you want to do with your life. And the ASSU is a great way to try to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So what do you think we should do to try to make people more aware? Because the other reality is it's very difficult for anyone to stay on Zoom all day and all of our mm -hmm. GSC and Senate meetings they all have to be on Zoom. And right. so people right. people are only aware of what we do if they read the Stanford Daily or if they are on those Zoom meetings. It's a little bit unfortunate. But there's you know, there there are very there aren't any posters on campus anymore. Right. Unless they're from last year, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so how do you think we can make people more aware of the things we do? That is something that I wanted to accomplish in my last few months as FM CEO. And I was going to have you and Amy and the other people on the kind of the communications and marketing team help to segment to see how our freshmen best outreach to versus MBA students, right? Uh, I think what can kind of be a, a default in um, some people's minds is, oh, we, we just market things out. We, do, we just have posters, we just post on social media, that's fine. But I think in order to have successful successful marketing and branding techniques, you have to segment it by population. Freshmen are going to work differently than, than seniors versus second year law students, right? And so I was really going to take those last few months to, to really segment to see is email the best communication versus having faculty talk about us, etc. Wasn't able to do that because COVID hit. Part of the marketing techniques, right, was to be doing things on a multitude of levels. So not just digital, but print. There would be, well, you're doing the broadcast now, right? Podcast. And there would be events. And that's kind of my big thing is doing 
in-person events, being able to, to talk to people, meet them where they're at, and that is just completely flipped on its head. So now that people are on Zoom all day, I am actually really curious to see what marketing has been like for student groups on campus. I mean, some of the ideas that I would get for marketing techniques, um, you know, as building up to like the rebranding week, for example, with all of those events, I would actually get from student groups as I, you know, walked around on campus or as I saw in emails. So I'd be super curious to see what student groups are doing, market themselves out to, to freshmen and whatnot. So if I had to say now in this COVID world, for like the next, like what, next month or so, next two quarters, I would say hosting events online would actually be a good way and there's actually you know a lot of people will cling to zoom which makes sense a lot of people have used it before people know the buttons um i would really encourage the assu sse or even other people who are looking to market and looking to get people interested to try out different apps to use um different platform virtual event platforms to use there was one actually i went to an event conference a conference about events earlier this week and they used this platform called swap card super interesting but i think the the way that they actually planned the event where they had no one talk for more than 25 minutes actually most people only talked for about 15 to 20 minutes at the most really was able to play well to people's attention span what's tough to do about zoom classes zoom meetings is that if they begin to go even over like about 45 minutes you lose people a lot people are switching now to like their phone or to different computer tabs people aren't paying attention what worked really well is the platform itself was really nice and intuitive to use so i actually didn't have to you know look up how to how to click on this or how to unmute or whatever it was really engaging content it was quick it was fast you moved on to the next thing in the agenda there was a five minute break in between um the different sessions and what was cool is that it was much more interactive than than zoom is you would actually react to people's comments as people were commenting on the session so you could you know do a clapping emoji or, or something like that versus just kind of the, the chat function in Zoom is just kind of a free-for-all. So promise this isn't an ad for Swap Card. Sure. I get no sponsorship money from them. That would be cool, but <laughs> I don't. But I think engaging in new platforms is just going to be able to market people a little bit better because they're going to be interested. It's something new, right? We haven't had something new in so long that trying and experimenting with new things, I think, could be a, an interesting way to market. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think Discord could also be useful. I know that a lot of people use it for gaming and for smaller friend groups, but it's supposed to be a lot more fluid uh, in terms of being able to talk and leave and enter at will without having the thing say, Lomo has entered the meeting or something. Like <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and this was a little bit of a challenge uh, because I was helping run a convention a couple weeks ago for several hundred people, and I remember... Um, in the general session, I think we had like 500 people sign up and not nearly that many attended. But I remember sitting there and just, you know, hearing my computer say three people have entered the meeting. And this was during a presentation. So I think, oh, just, no. Yeah. So I think just finding a channel that doesn't have that um, just, you know, and being creative. I mean, we have so many creative people at Stanford. Maybe they could design something. Yeah, and there actually there are a few platforms that either were built by Stanford students or built by Stanford recent Stanford alumni. Um, I haven't tried some of those out yet, but no, absolutely, there's lot so many different options out there. And you know whether you want to do something for something more formal like a meeting or a conference, or if you want to do something more social, there are different platforms for that. Yeah, and I think one thing that the ASSU could also do is have um, you know have a few people do an event. So 
I don't know, maybe have a senator partner up with a GSC person and find some commonality that they could do uh, in terms of hosting an event like once a week. I think that'd be cool. Exactly. That sounds super dope. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to ask you about Cardinal Ventures because this is something that not too many people have heard of. And I think that's a really good incentive to get involved with us and to kind of explore uh, creativity like we were just talking about a little bit ago. Um, so mm -hmm. would you mind talking a little more about Cardinal <coughs> Ventures? Absolutely. So Cardinal Ventures was started back in 2015. It's one of the newer Stanford Student Enterprises businesses by the Moore sisters who are now in venture capital. And essentially it was to fill the space. At the time there was, I don't believe there was a startup accelerator on campus built by students at least. And so this was to fill that void. Over time, it's it's changed a little bit in terms of the, the content and the way it's formatted. Now, I believe, unless uh, Michelle and the and Sevda and the team have changed it, it is a about a 10-week program. Usually happens about twice a year. Probably is only going to happen once a year this year, though, to confirm with Michelle and Sevda on that. A uh, 10-week program that accepts founders at a multitude of stages. So you can already have funding. You can be pre-seed, you can be just starting out and looking for another co-founder. Um, and you learn about a lot of the, the basics of how to successfully build a startup, how to pivot, financing look, looks like, uh, establishing yourself legally, business development itself, product management, hiring staffing, right? Hiring staff, I should say. And which all culminates in a demo day where you actually, as a founder who's accepted into the program, you actually get to pitch your your startup, your idea, your idea to investors and, and angel investors and entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley community. Um, and it's gained a lot of traction, especially over the last few years and being one of the premier student accelerators only in the Bay Area, but also in the country. And what's super cool that I love that Michelle, um, and at the time, Romali, who is now recently graduated and was replaced by, by Sevda, who's at the business school. What they've done is really started to expand the outreach of Cardinal Ventures so that they're actually working with us, with uh, student-run accelerators at other universities. So I actually believe they did an event relatively recently with um, Howard University's accelerator, which I think is called Hugh. Not totally sure on that, but that was something that hadn't been done before. Um, we had kind of remained a little bit more insular. We had a ton of contacts already within the Silicon Valley community, but we're, we're expanding now nationally, which I think is, is super dope and super smart to do, uh, especially now during the pandemic. And so what founders were able also to find through the program is really a sense of community where Cardinal Ventures is there to support them. They don't take equity in the company whatsoever. It's really a supportive community of founders, of staff who's there to make sure that your idea, um, wherever you take it, is as successful as possible and that you feel that you have the resources to be able to go with your company beyond Stanford. So we also have a mentoring network of people in the, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship area and a lot of events, mainly mainly for the, the founders themselves, but also that are open to the community too. Wow, that is amazing. And I think it'll definitely have to be pretty different this year because it's difficult to get virtual events together but I'm hoping that that can still stay very alive because I know some people who have um, done some projects through there and I think that it has a lot of potential especially now as the pandemic is going on and on and on 100% um, yeah yeah so unfortunately 
that is about all the time we have today. But to end on a hopefully happier note, quarantine is still happening, but the holidays are also still happening. So what kind of plans have you got? <laughs> That's a, that is a happier note. Um, unfortunately, can't go back to Detroit where I'm natively, oh. where, I, where I'm from. Gotta keep the parents safe, you know. I'm blessed to be able to have a, a roof over my head. I do not have to worry too much about stuff like that. So very, very grateful for that. And I'll be spending it with my boyfriend's family here in the Bay. Oh, that's cute. Do you have any favorite holiday songs that we should listen to? I'll sing one for you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, please. No, please do. <laughs> I'm just going to oh. not end this recording until we can get a karaoke from you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'll have to have a few glasses of wine in order for okay. that to happen. But it is a Friday, you know. Yeah. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. But hey, everyone has to go listen to Mary J. Blige, uh, Mary J. Blige's version of This Christmas. Oh, my goodness. I'm it gonna is. Go, I'm going to go listen to that as soon as December 1st hits. Please <laughs> do. Okay. I, I love that song. I mean, I love this Christmas in general. Um, I think who originally sang it might have been Donny Hathaway, which is also a great version. But the, Mary J. Blige's is my favorite. Like, can't. Oh, and you know what you also have to listen to is Patti LaBelle's um, version of this Christmas when oh, she sings it on amazing. C-SPAN. When you sing, oh, my goodness. She sings it on C-SPAN, um, so you have to you have to have the the video going the and everything, the live. It yeah. is that that's a good laugh. That's for sure a good laugh. But this Christmas is just it, my, probably my favorite Christmas song for sure, holiday song. But yes. All right. Well, there's a good recommendation for everyone. I will definitely listen to that uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us today, Lomo. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Cricket. Love, love being able to, to talk to you and, and reminisce about the, the good old days. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. That's, it seems so long ago, but hopefully we can be in person soon. And uh, as soon as it's healthy to do so, hopefully we can have some sort of ASSU reunion or something. Absolutely. You know, I'll plan it. I love myself some events. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, there we go. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. That was Lomo Phillips, the financial manager of the ASSU and CEO of Stanford Student Enterprises during the 2018-2019 and 2019-2020 school years. This has been another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman, and I hope that all of you have a great start to your December. Thanks.